So the topic you probably know because you may have gotten an email about it or seen it on the flyer. And it's a series on right view, but the theme for tonight is what must be known is the question. And I'd like to begin with the verse from the Anguttaranakaya where the Buddha said, the Dhamma is directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, worthy of application, to be personally experienced by the wise. What is it that we must experience? What must be known to free the mind from suffering? Now, in this discourse where the Buddha said the Dhamma is directly visible, he then goes on to describe how seeing the presence or the absence of greed, hate, and delusion is the Dhamma directly visible. It's clearly seeing the experience that we know within ourselves of how suffering forms and how it ends. This is what must be known. This is what is the Dhamma that is visible. The Buddha tells us, though, not only what should be known, but why it should be known. It should be known because mindful investigation, mindful awareness, leads us to understand what causes suffering and what is the end of suffering. In a discourse, in the middle-length discourses, one Vachagota, was his name, um, asked the Buddha if he claimed to be omniscient and all-seeing and to have complete knowledge. And the Buddha said that he did not make that claim. He only knows what he directs his attention to. Now, this seems like a very simple statement because most of us would assume perhaps that, um, you know, we, we're not all-seeing and omniscient, and we only know what we direct our attention to. Um, And the Buddha was basically saying exactly the same thing. He only knows what he directs his attention to. And so it becomes very important to consider and to ponder, what do we need to direct our attention to? What do we need to understand? We certainly don't need to gather a tremendous amount of knowledge. The Buddha taught that what must be known is the experience, actually, that most of us try to avoid. The serious practitioner will realize that what we must know is nothing other than suffering, conditionality, and the various disguises that ignorance takes. We know them, we expose them, we bring mindfulness to bear on them, we investigate them thoroughly. We look at them so clearly that we, through the deep understanding, the penetrative knowledge, we stop fueling them. We free the mind through wisdom. Many of you have heard me quote the Buddha when he said, one who is concentrated understands things as they really are. Well, this statement is followed by a rhetorical question, and it asks, and what does he understand as it really is? 
And then in three different discourses, the Buddha answers three different ways. And they all describe different approaches to insight. The first is probably the one that you might be more familiar with, which is to understand the characteristics of conditioned things. To understand things as they really are implies understanding them as impermanent, as unreliable, and as without an independently existing self-identity. Basically, to see what are called the three characteristics of conditioned phenomenon. Now, the second approach is to understand the conditionality of mind and body processes. How are perceptions clung to? How do they form a basis of self-grasping? So this is, un- this is seen through seeing the dependent arising of what are called the five aggregates, to see how mind and body and mental and physical phenomenon arise dependent on causes and conditions. Now, the third thing that one understands, as it really is, is to understand suffering, to understand what is the cause of suffering, to understand how suffering ends, and to understand the path leading to the end of suffering. This, these are the Four Noble Truths. And they, these three approaches encapsulate three primary thrusts of insight meditation. One that focuses around the three characteristics of phenomenon, the other that focuses on causes and effects dependent arising, and the third is one that focuses on seeing suffering and the end of suffering and its causes through the Four Noble Truths. Any of these approaches is enough to liberate the mind, to put an end to suffering. And so we consider what should be known. In one discourse in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha said that six things should be known. And he describes them, suggests that they be known in six different ways. And the six things that are to be known include desires, feelings, perceptions, the taints, kama, and suffering. And each one should be recognized Its conditioned origin should be known, its diversity should be known, its outcome, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation should be known. So I want to look at these six uh, things that should be known tonight, one by one. The first is that desires should be known. Why should desires be known? Aren't we supposed to be beyond desires? Well, they're going to cause so much suffering if we're not aware of their influence over us. As animals, we're biologically inclined to try to get what we want. You've probably all seen children when they can't get what they want and throw a little temper tantrum, crying, yelling. They can't suppress that desire And they suffer when they don't get what they want. Brain studies have shown that anticipation of pleasure produces a a greater flood of endorphins than actually getting the desired object. Now, of course, this has a survival advantage um, because then it charges up the the biological system so that we can have the energy 
and to pursue food, to pursue mates, or whatever it is that we want. Now, researchers test this sort of thing in the laboratory by having subjects play video games and then monitoring the responses to the anticipation of winning points and then the responses to actually receiving the points. And the um, endorphin response is greater in the anticipation phase than in actually receiving. Now, experienced meditators are going to understand the downside of this biological mechanism. What is that? Quite obviously, pleasure is never satisfying. Because, the, because when we attain the object, we're going to feel just a little bit let down. It's not as great as we had hoped it was. It's not as great as the anticipation of it. And so we're propelled into seeking more, anticipating something more. In the Buddhist text, it says we're like monkeys that swing through the forest, grasping one branch after another. People travel through their lives, moving from one desire to the next. To break the cycle periodically we must be willing to step away from sensory pleasures, to break that intoxication, to break that enchantment, and to make some space to let go, to allow some renunciation into our lives, to become content with what is, and to allow the mind to explore a kind of delight that is beyond sensory pleasure. The Buddha described sensory pleasures as being like a meatless bone. And you might wonder, why a meatless bone? It seems like an odd analogy. But if somebody takes a meatless bone that has, that has nothing on it but just smear, uh, some smears with blood and throws it to a dog, the dog may gnaw on it, but it's not going to satisfy the dog's hunger because it doesn't have the substance there. Similarly, sensory pleasures may at first taste intoxicating, like the the dog who licks the bone, but it's not going to be deeply satisfying for us. So we work with sensory pleasures in our meditation practice. We work with them in our lives not only when we have a lot of luxury and fine conditions, but even in very simple settings, we can try to check our minds to see when they're enthralled with sensory pleasures, when they are seeking thrills and delights. Have you observed desire in your mind today? Did you recognize a time when you were leaning towards something, reaching for something, wanting something? Are you distracted by the desire or the inclination towards sensory stimulation? Do you fill the mind with entertainments and fantasy any time there's a moment of quiet? Now, the second thing that the Buddha suggested that we know are feelings. Feelings include feelings that are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. If 
this feeling tone of experience is unrecognized, then it can trigger the underlying habitual tendencies where pleasant feeling tone gives rise to desire and unpleasant feeling tone gives rise to aversion and neutral feeling tone gives rise to ignorance. I spoke um, at length about this subject uh, this past weekend when we had the day long that was focused on mindfulness of feeling tone. And I shared a verse from the uh, parable of the two darts from the Samyutta Nikaya, where it says, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. He feelings, feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, and then they would strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart, so that that man would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. So some of you might be familiar with that simile of the dart. Do we let the painful feeling that arises in the body just be that, a painful feeling that arises naturally with the body? Or do we develop aversion towards it, anger around it, resistance? Do we hate it? Do we want it to go away? Do we push against it? All of these are second darts. And then the discourse goes through the sequence of, 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 of the um, painful feelings and then um, if one, then the, and reacting with the second dart and then the possibility of somebody feeling the, the, the bodily pain but not reacting against it, not adding a second dart and concludes with the statement, if he feels a feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a pleasant feel, sorry, if he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. So any feeling that one feels, one can feel it detached. This does not mean that one is detached from feelings. This means one feels feelings, pleasant, painful, or neutral, but the mind is detached from that reaction to it of adding the second dart, the resistance, the contraction, the reactivity against. And so this enables one to be mindful of the feeling, to feel it with a balanced mind, observing the feeling, present for it. The Buddha recommended that with any feeling that arises, we can relate to it with the, 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 the approach, such it is. Three words, such it is. It's a very profound practice to relate to any feeling that arises, pleasant, painful, or neutral, from the attitude, such it is. 
if we have that view, that right view that recognizes such it is, we will see the impermanence of that feeling. When pain arises, we will know that it will change on its own. We don't need to compound it with more reactivity. When there's pleasure, we will know that it also is impermanent and will change. So we don't need to long for it to last and then suffer because it didn't last. Often we will have the intellectual knowledge that things change, but we still act as though pain is going to last forever and that pleasure is a reliable basis for our happiness. So as we develop mindfulness, we're not so concerned with all the sensations of the body and mind. Sometimes we can notice the feeling tone because an unmindful relationship to feelings will trigger those underlying tendencies of greed, hate, and delusion. In the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha said, when one knows and sees the impermanence of the senses, the impermanence of contact and feeling, then wrong view is abandoned. So tonight's talk is emphasizing a little bit more of the wrong view aspect in the right view series. Because by seeing and knowing the things that we must know, then we can free the mind from the wrong view that is trapped by those things. We can observe our feelings. We can know them. And when we know them pleasant, painful, or neutral, then that is just what they are, feelings being known. Now, the third um, thing that must be known are perceptions. Our perceptions are conditioned. They're conditioned by our culture, our education, our background, our personal histories. They're conditioned karmically. Even the basic fact that we've all taken birth as a human being means that there is a certain kind of comic conditioning at play. We have ears and eyes and nose and tongue that come with the human body. These are different than the sensory experiences of a fish or of an eagle or of a bat or of a spider or of a dog. Every being will have a different sense set of sense faculties, a different range of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, a different mental capacity. And this is, these are the mechanisms through which we perceive the world. Views arise out of our perceptions, and so different perceptions will incline the mind towards different ways of seeing, different views. People conditioned by one religion or another, one culture or another, raised in different climates, in different generations, will all have different views on life. Vipassana instructions guide meditators to notice and perceive 
certain things so that we can have a, a, an insight into the nature of things. And some of the things that we are guided to look at are called the specific and general characteristics of phenomenon. And first we might consider the specific characteristics of matter, of the body. What really is this body? Body is a concept. When we look at the characteristics, we might look at hardness or softness, heat or cold. We might look at the flowing quality or the cohesion of matter. We might look at the way that there's pressure or pushing or the supporting aspect. We can directly experience these specific characteristics in our mindfulness practice. But it's not just matter that has individual and specific characteristics. Also mental states have specific characteristics. You know the quality of anger. It's very different than the quality of joy, isn't it? They feel different. They each have their own characteristics. And sometimes we can feel them in the body. You know, when you feel angry, you might feel tight or hot. Whereas calmness might have a more relaxed or soft quality to it. Fear might bring a kind of trembling or uncertainty to the body. Wholesome states will all have factors such as mental factors such as mindfulness, some equanimity or balance of attention. And unwholesome states will include delusion and restlessness. The states are recognizable to us because of their specific characteristics. We learn about them. We know them. We know them before we've meditated. All of you could recognize the difference between being sad and being um, grateful. They feel different, don't they? But when we come to meditation, we look very closely at those and see how we respond to the subtleties of the specific characteristics. And we don't stop at the surface, superficial level of perception. We also recognize that these conditions arise. We understand the causes and conditions for their arising. What brings about the specific characteristics of phenomenon? And then, once we know the experience specifically, we can look to the general characteristics and see how all conditioned experiences of mind and body are marked by these the three characteristics of being impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self. In Pali, the terms are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. The fourth thing that must be known is what are called the taints, asavas in Pali. And the three taints are the taint of sensual desire, the taint of desire for becoming, the taint of ignorance. And sometimes there's a fourth in some discourses, which is views, wrong views. The night of the Buddha's enlightenment 
when he described that night, he said, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the destruction of the taints. I directly knew as it actually is, these are the taints. I directly knew as it actually is, this is the origin of the taints. I directly knew as it actually is, this is the cessation of the taints. I directly knew as it actually is, this is the way leading to the cessation of the taints. When I knew and saw thus, my mind was liberated from the taint of sensual desire, from the taint of being, and from the taint of ignorance. When it was liberated, there came the knowledge, it is liberated. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as it happens in one who abides diligent, ardent, and resolute. Essentially, we must know the problem, the problem very clearly and thoroughly so that we can liberate the mind from suffering. Now, the fifth thing that should be known is kama. Kama means action. It includes an examination of conditionality, how our actions have effects. Understanding the law of kama encourages us to look carefully at our actions and to consider the potential results. Where is an action leading? It gives a structure for recognizing our involvement in the flow of causes and effects in the past, the present, and the future. Kama is not the only cause. There are other causes and conditions that lead to effects. Climate, digestion, kings are among those listed in the discourses. But kama is one important factor that conditions experience. The Buddha said, against four things, O monks, there can be no guarantee. What are those four things? That what is liable to to decay should not decay, that what is liable to illness should not fall ill, that what is liable to die should not die, and that no fruit should come forth from one's own deeds. Contemplating kama and cause and effect can bring a deep kind of peace and a sense of empowerment through the knowledge that causes have effects. Effects arise because of causes. When we understand a little bit even about the, of the law of cause and effect, we might stop resisting our experience. It empowers us to influence our actions, to use our actions to influence future results. We can observe the way intentions lead into actions, the way our thought moves into deeds. We can sometimes backtrack and reflect in our minds. From an action, we can reflect upon our intention so that not only is the action clear, 
but the intention that was supporting that action can become clear so that we cultivate both kind and good and clear, wise actions in life and also kind and clear and wholesome intentions in the mind. Now, the last in this list of six things that must be known is suffering. There's a verse in the Samyutta Nikaya that says, it is only suffering that comes to be, suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be, nothing but suffering ceases. Now, I find this quote to be very beautiful. And it always surprises me that not everybody does. Some people consider it a bit of a downer. Now, just in case you were feeling like it might be a bit of a downer, I'm going to read it again. But instead of the word suffering, I'm going to replace it with only impermanent things. Maybe impermanent things. Something about impermanent. Because in the Buddhist tradition, we understand the, the impermanence of things, the fact that everything is changing as being intimately linked with the understanding of suffering. Because suffering arises when we try to grasp things that are constantly changing. The insight into impermanence and the insight into the unsatisfactoriness of phenomenon are linked. So I'm going to read this again. It is only impermanent things that come to be, impermanent things that stand and fall away. Nothing but impermanent things come to be. Nothing but impermanent things cease. No resistance to that one, right? It's obvious. When we understand the link between impermanence and, and grasping after impermanent things leading to suffering, then we'll really understand this verse. There is only suffering that comes to be, suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be, nothing but suffering ceases. So I asked at the beginning of the talk, what needs to be known? What needs to be understood? The Buddha's teaching was not reserved for intellectuals. It doesn't require academic degrees, but it also is not anti-intellectual. Although we don't need to have done philosophical studies to practice Buddhism, we don't need to have a PhD in Buddhist philosophy to contemplate our own experience in the light of right view. And we don't need to argue with or believe or adopt the teachings and the texts. The sutta teachings point to a possibility that we may not yet have, point to a possibility that we may not yet have the conditions, though, to be able to recognize, to be able to recognize what is right view? How are things the way that they are? It points to a perspective on life that could be radically different 
than what our cultural conditioning teaches us. And it might point to a perspective that is so radically different that we might not immediately recognize it or see its liberating potential. The Buddha said that his knowledge was vast. It was as vast as all the leaves in the forest. But he didn't teach everything that he knew. So when he looked up at the forest, he said, my knowledge is as vast as all the leaves in the forest. But then he reached down and he showed a handful of leaves. And he said, what I teach is like this handful of leaves. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. This is enough to free the mind. This is enough to know the end of suffering. So when you look into your own experience of the senses, when you look into the body and the mind and try to see for yourself, what is what in the body? What are the characteristics of the body? What are the characteristics of the mind? How do they function? How do they relate? How do we relate to feelings? How do we relate to perceptions? How do we relate to kama, our actions? How do we relate to desires? We'll recognize that all these experiences are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. Are we still craving, grasping after experiences that are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self? By recognizing the grasping, we have the possibility of ending the suffering that we generally repeat automatically. When we know the problem, we have the chance to not repeat it. And so the Buddha said, the Dhamma is directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see worthy of application to be personally experienced by the wise. Does anybody have any comments or questions about this subject of what must be known? Yes, please. It's in the, um, it's in the Book of the Sixes in the Anguttarinakaya. And that discourse is um, from the Book of the Sixes. It's number 63. Well, I thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.